Hi there. Thank you for joining us on the Redeemer Church Podcast. Here at Redeemer, we exist to see Christ exalted in our church, community, and world. It is our mission to lead people into the presence of God, devotion to His Word, authentic fellowship with others, and discovering their ministry. We hope this podcast is just one of the ways you connect to God's presence this week. Let's check out this week's message. Good morning, everyone. It's so good to be with you for worship this morning. Hello to all of you with us online, joining us from many different locations. We know there are many of you every week, and uh, we hope you're having a great day today, especially those of you driving home from the Texas State Fair. Hope you had a good weekend. James, James, James. What a series. Hupameno. Perseverance, trials of many kinds, perseverance as a discipline, but also a delight, suffering, Christian maturity, temptation, hearing and doing the word of God, faith without works, taming the tongue, resisting the devil, repentance. That's a lot packed into six short chapters, isn't it? Today, I've titled this sermon, how to wait well. How to wait well. We'll be in James chapter 5. I just said six chapters. It's five. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 9, if you'd like to turn there. Uh, but before we get into Scripture today, I have a treat for you. On the last week of this series on James, I thought we could laugh a little. That is, if you enjoy laughing. Would you all like to laugh a little? All right, here's Michael Jr. with some thoughts about Jesus' half-brother. I like reading the Bible. I was reading the Bible, found out, uh, found out Jesus had a little brother. Anybody know his name? James. When I read that, I was like, how much pressure was that? <laughs> Jesus, your big brother? How many times did you have to hear, why come you can't be more like Jesus, James? Because you know, everybody probably thought that James could do the same thing Jesus could do, but he couldn't. He was just James. He wasn't James Christ. <laughs> Remember the wedding banquet? Jesus turned water into wine. Everybody was amazed, but they don't tell you about the next banquet. Jesus left early. They started running out of wine. Everybody looked at James. <laughs> it's like, man, last time this happened, your brother made some wine, dude. You, you just going to stand there with your sandals on? You're not going to... Can you make some Kool-Aid or something, man? You're not going to do anything. <sighs> you know James had problems just like any other kid had problems. He would try to follow his big brother around. So everywhere Jesus went, James followed him. That's what little brothers do. So if Jesus went there, so did James. I bet one time James almost drowned. Oh, you just got that joke just now, didn't you? <laughs> Jesus walked on water and James tried to exist. Yeah. <laughs> I 
I'm sure James had problems. He would go to his parents with his problems. And his parents, especially his, his mom, was trying to throw him a bone once in a while. They pray over their food. They're like, Lord, we just thank you for this food in James' name. James had problems. He would go to his parents with his problems, and you know what they would say? He'd be like, well, what would Jesus do, you know? <laughs> then they gave him a bracelet. They gave him a bracelet, and um, <laughs> then he started selling those bracelets, you know? <laughs> Made some money selling bracelets. What would be cool is a what would James do bracelet, right? Same initials, different meaning. Completely different meaning. You're driving down the street, you get cut off in traffic. You fuss them out, your pastor gonna be like, yo, you got a what would Jesus do bracelet on? You're like, uh-uh, that's what would James do. How about that? Michael Jr. comedy, everyone. I actually know Mike, and I wanted to text him this week and say, I'm just gonna steal all your jokes. Uh, for this last sermon on James, but thought I'd roll the video for you instead. I sat down with him one night many years ago and we wrote out some jokes together. And apparently none of my material is funny enough to be invited on the road with Michael Jr. Oh well, James 5. So we're gonna see verses one through six presenting trials that wealthy Roman or Jewish landowners were uh, causing for poor Christian day laborers. And then seven through nine provide this proper response to those trials, so let's jump in. Verse one, now listen you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded, their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Well, what an encouraging start. Now, I agree with the scholars who believe that these first three verses were not written to the Christians in the early church. But instead, they were written to those people who were taking advantage of those Christians. Why? Because in all previous texts that you see James calling someone out or slapping someone on the wrist, all these Christian groups he's writing to, there was always the aim of correcting their misbehavior, but also provided for them some sort of redemptive action. Here he's speaking, you rich people, but gives them no redemptive options. So instead of calling them to change their ways, he just warns them of the impending disaster. Weep and wail, mourn your coming fate. This kind of writing is speaking to those who are not present for the benefit of those who were. The background of the word wail is used by the prophets. It makes it safe to assume that the misery coming upon these rich people refer not to their earthly misery, but to condemnation and punishment on the day of judgment. But even knowing the context, that James very well could have been speaking to the rich people who were oppressing these poor Christians, anyone with wealth should pay attention to this passage, should pay attention to verse three. I remember a season of my life where I had zero wealth. College. Any of y'all have those days? Those college days, 
maybe a dime to your name. My roommate Justin and I, we would walk to the office building of Summer Point Apartments there on Berry Street, just down the street from the University of Oklahoma. Just pausing for a second. (laughs) We would pay our rent. We would do so. There were these things, young people, listen, there were these things back in the days, paper, and it's, it's called a check. And Justin and I would sit there and split our rent, and this lady would take our checks. It was one of the worst days of the month. It was hard to pay rent. And as we would walk back to our apartment, we were unsure if we even had enough money to pick up dinner that night. We lived off of ramen noodles, canned corn, and toast. It's quite a life. We didn't even own a microwave. One day, bulk trash day in Norman happened, and we saw a microwave in somebody's driveway. And we picked it up. We laid our hands on it and prayed over it. We took it back to the apartment, plugged it in, and it worked. To the glory of God, our diets changed. We started heating food up. And two years later, when we moved out, we drove that microwave back and put it back on that driveway (laughs) with a thank you card. I just remember those days, the struggle was so real. And I don't know today if the struggle is real for you or if it's not when it comes to wealth. But what I do know is that if you have $4,210 to your name, you are richer than half of the world's population. If you have $4,200 to your name, richer than half of the world's population. So, we we may not be the landlords that are taking advantage of the body of Christ today, but we need to hear, we need to pay attention to what he's teaching us here. He frustratingly writes, you have hoarded wealth in the last days. What are the last days? They're, They're today. We're in these last days that James wrote about. Christ can return at any moment. So these verses challenge me to ask about my own life, where is my treasure? Is it in Christ, in his return, or is it in the world? He's echoing his half-brother's teaching in Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I want to be clear with you because the Bible's clear about finances and about how we manage and steward what God has entrusted into our care. James is not condemning owning anything. He's not condemning saving money. He's not condemning investing money. He's got a problem with hoarding. And we'll see that more specifically in verse 4. Here's his accusation. Look, the wages that you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Essentially, these rich folks have experienced their heaven on earth. And we see so much more than affluence here. Their excessive personal consumption reveals that these people had enough. These people had more than enough 
to help take care of the needs of the less fortunate around them, yet they did not. Thus, maybe they arrive at judgment day content with the life that they've lived on earth, but also condemned. Verse four accomplishes two things. One, it levels the charge against those rich who have extorted and cheated their workers. It also provides comfort for the suffering workers. As they know, God sees them, God hears them, and God cares about their suffering. As for the mention of murder in verse six, one commentary explains it this way. The murder here most likely is judicial, whereby the wealthy landowners take smaller, poorer, indebted farmers to court, stripping them of their land and thus of their source of income, and then hiring them back again to work their former property as sharecroppers. With dirt poor wages, unpaid debts might then lead their new landlords to throw them into debtor's prison, where they could rot for the rest of their lives. Once in prison, making money to pay one's debts was not an option. So unless some better financially situated friends or relatives bailed one out, that person often died in jail. This is heavy. This is really, really heavy stuff that these early Christians were dealing with. And I share all this so that you know the horrendous background to which James is addressing. So what should the people do about it, right? Verse seven, he says, be patient. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. They must wait patiently, faithfully, knowing that the Lord of vast armies sees their suffering and cares about them. We're not gonna get angry. We're not going to seek revenge. We're not going to turn to violence, and our response, we're going to wait. This is hard. James takes a turn here in his writing, and he's turning our attention onto the return of Christ. This is really, really hard. I just spent time with a gentleman yesterday who's walking through the most unimaginable pain, the most unimaginable situation. And as I'm standing there with him, I'm thinking about this text that I got to wake up this morning and preach. How do we reconcile this in our hearts? How can the Holy Spirit minister to us through scripture and remind us even on our very worst days and as we experience the most difficult trials, we wait for the promised return of Jesus Christ. We wait. William Broson says it this way. Christ is coming back. He's coming back soon, at least from God's perspective. And he will wreak vengeance on the wicked with absolute justice and equity, something sinful mortals could never do and therefore should not try to do. 
So if not anger, if not revenge, if not violence, how does one wait well for the return of the Lord? I'm glad you asked. Three things that I see in this passage, and the first is be patient. Be patient. The analogy of farming, obviously, as you just heard the description a moment ago, of losing their fields, losing their properties, and then being rehired to work those properties, this analogy would have resonated deeply with James' audience. Just as the farmer can do nothing to force God to send rain, we cannot force Jesus to return at our preferred timing. But unlike the farmer who desperately waits for rain, and rain that is not 100% guaranteed, you and I do have a guarantee, and that guarantee is 100%, and that guarantee and that promise is that Jesus is coming back. Okay, let's try that again. Unlike the farmer who's waiting desperately for rain that is not guaranteed 100% that it's going to come, you and I do have a guarantee. His name is Jesus and he is coming back and that's 100% certain. Can you celebrate that? So we are patiently waiting. It must be the most important thing in our lives and it's guaranteed. Number two, stand firm, which in the original language actually doesn't say stand firm. It says strengthen your hearts. I love that language. James is saying you have to wait, right? I mean, you cannot force the return of Jesus at the timing you prefer, so we have, we must wait on his return, but as we're waiting, we strengthen our hearts. James 5.8 could be better understood as follows. You must wait. Strengthen your hearts and do so by resolutely turning your thoughts and your feelings in the direction of the Lord's return. So every single day of this life, the return of Christ is right in front of my thinking. I'm always taking my mind there. I'm dwelling on it. I'm concentrating on it. I'm longing for it. That's what strengthens our hearts and allows us to stand firm until he returns. And lastly, don't complain. Here James goes again, dealing with the topic of speech, right? Taming the tongue. In times of stress, what do we tend to do? Has anybody here been through stress lately? Anybody? I mean, y'all go through stressful days, times, situations. When we experience stress in our lives, what do we unfortunately do? We take it out on the people closest to us. Perhaps because they are the safest people in our lives. But we get stressed and we take it out on those that we love. These early Christians were stressed. Perhaps they were projecting their frustrations at the landlords onto one another, or maybe they disagreed on how to deal with this oppression, right? You have a couple families having dinner together and one of them suggests that we're gonna respond to this with violence. And the other family says, no, we're not gonna do that. Now we're at odds, right? So we're complaining, we're grumbling about one another, maybe blaming one another for problems that we're facing and they were at risk of judgment for it. 
Craig Blomberg writes this, Christians often act as though judgment remains far off, a distant future possibility. James argues, however, that Christ's return lies close at hand, on the threshold of the doorway. Remember verse nine, the judge standing at the door. We ought to behave as people ready for a judgment that has already begun in this life and will culminate quickly at his return. You know, Christians, even the indwelling place of the same Holy Spirit, we can be mean to each other. We can argue, fight, quarrel, belittle. We can worship in the same church, pray in the same sanctuary, serve on the same mission field, but still treat one another unfairly, poorly, unkindly. It reminds me of a group of students in the classroom, right? Teachers not in the room. They're all fighting and arguing. The teacher walks in the room and what happens? Everybody sits down, shuts their mouth and faces the front like nothing ever happened. We can be guilty of doing the same. By the way, you know the picture I'm painting here. You all have been in that classroom. I don't know if you were the one causing a problem or just a spectator, but you've been in those settings when we sit up straight and look to the front like nothing ever happened. As believers, we don't need to wait for the return of Jesus to start treating one another with kindness. It can start now. So when, when James is writing to these oppressed Christians, wait, what does it mean to wait well? To wait for his return well is to be patient, to stand firm, and don't complain. I wanna do something to close this sermon and this series on James. Something I've never done before to finish a message. You know, when I say the word wait, you may think, no, I don't like waiting. I don't even like being the third car in the line at the restaurant, right? Waiting is hard. I read this week that waiting in line is a timeless form of torture. Yeah. While waiting is not enjoyable, it is a daily discipline that we should be practicing as Christians. It is a daily discipline that we wait, even during trials, even more so during trials, because that's what James is writing to here. Are we waiting on the Lord's return? Are we waiting well? So I felt led to conclude this series by inviting all of us into this good practice of waiting together. Time well spent this morning. So I invite you, get comfortable in your seat. Close your Bible. Shut down the phone. You can close your eyes. Clear your mind. As our pastor of spiritual formation, Garland Tackett says, for the next few minutes, pay attention to what you're paying attention to. And deeply ponder the questions and statements that I'm going to share. And here's the first. Do you have a daily longing for Christ's return? Are you aware of your own waiting on him? Think on that for a moment.
Second, Jesus is coming. He's coming. And there's not a thing that can stop him. Dwell on that. First Corinthians 16, 22, translated into Aramaic, includes this phrase, Maranatha, Maranatha, come, Lord, come, Lord. Maybe you've never prayed that prayer before, or maybe it's been a long time. Take time to pray that right now. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Lastly, one of our greatest bonds as we sit here together and worship today is that collectively we're waiting together. I'm waiting with you. You're waiting with me for that fulfilled promise that Jesus made long ago. So let that become our song this morning together. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Once again, thank you for listening to the Redeemer Church Podcast. To stay connected with all that God is doing here at Redeemer, you can visit RedeemerTulsa.org or find us on Facebook or Instagram. Have a blessed week.